0: Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan. And today I'm joined by Esha Shabra. She is an author, she's a writer, She's been she's published in the New York Times, The Economist, Forbes Magazine, Wired Magazine. She has an impressive career as a writer and an author. And she's written a new book called Working to Restore, Harnessing the Power of Regenerative Businesses to Heal the World. I'm just delighted to have... Esha Shabra on the show today. Hi Esha, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: It's so nice. It's so nice to meet you. And where are you sitting right now when I, as we speak?
1: I am sitting in Ventura County about an hour north of Los Angeles in what is now sunny California finally after all that June gloom.
0: I know. I'm I'm in Glendale. We're not too far apart here. So yeah, yeah I. I know some you know southern california is they get sort of in a bad mood if we have too much uh, overcast skies it's, we're, we're really we really need all of that sunshine to keep our our spirits up apparently.
1: We're just not we're not programmed for clouds <laughs> we're just spoiled a bit I think.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now what are you doing what are you working on right now? I know you have just completed this amazing book and so what does one do when they've finished a the book do you relax uh, are you promoting the book and starting a new one what's 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 up?
1: I wish I wish we were relaxing. Um, you you enter what I've been calling the book treadmill, which is you now have the responsibility of promoting the book and getting it out there, and so that's what I've been doing. I um, was actually just in the UK and in Paris doing events a couple of weeks ago, and then um, doing events here in the LA area and just you know talking to people like yourself and sharing the message and obviously continuing to write. So I'm continuing to write on the subject matter, and I will you know, do that for perhaps eternity. I mean, I love, I love writing and reporting, so that will be my bread and butter and daily work.
0: Now, is this your first book or or have you done other books?
1: This is my first book. I am a, you know, a pioneer in this space.
0: So it's fantastic. <laughs> a rookie,
1: it's I should fantastic. say, rather than a pioneer. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's, it's you've done good. You've done good <laughs> as a, <laughs> as a rookie. Um, Let's back up and and for the sake of our our listeners, um, get a quick sense of your life and your career. You were born in Delhi, India. Mm
1: -hmm. And at
0: what age did you come to America?
1: I was about six years old when my parents made the decision to just leave everything behind in Delhi and start a new life. This was the early 90s and, and we moved to the United States Not really with a clear plan of of how things were going to go out. But um, my parents have always been, I would say, pretty courageous, intrepid folks. And so um, first generation immigrant sitting right here.
0: Yeah. And then did they come to California or did you all come to California originally?
1: Yeah, we pretty much ended up in California immediately. We took a little pit stop for about a month in DC. um, And that wasn't working out the kind of job that my dad had set up. And so, you know, he knew someone out here in Southern California. So he said, let's give California a try. We came out here um, and he built a business from really nothing that gave us support. And um, ever since then, we've been based here. I mean, I've obviously left and sort of bopped around the world, but this has been home.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and you, what would you say were your early childhood interests? Um...
1: Oh, gosh, um, I was a avid tennis player. I loved tennis. I loved watching tennis. I loved sports. I played basketball. I was really into athletics. Um, I was also, I mean, this was the 90s, right? And this was when cable news was kind of, I feel like, at its peak and in its glory days, still somewhat. So, when I did get into high school, I was very interested in journalism. I was very interested, though, in television journalism. So, I loved watching, you know, um, Katie Couric on, I think at the time she was on The Today Show, um, mm-hmm. the journalist on CNN. And that's why I was very keen to go to DC for undergrad because I really wanted to do political journalism. Yeah um and that was those were some of the the memories from the 90s it was a time where I feel like I was also that generation that didn't have a cell phone um growing up you know I got a cell phone pretty late I would say freshman year we got one of those little flip phones that could you could barely put a call on a text through kind of thing um so it was the time when we got all of our news and our information really from tv that was the the mode that we all used
0: Given that, I'm surprised you didn't go into television television production. I could see, I could see I, you being on a TV show.
1: Well, that's very kind. Um, I thought about it. I interned when I was at Georgetown as an undergrad. I actually interned for Katie Craig, So it was sort of like full circle in that way. Um, and she was doing the CBS Evening News. And then I went and I interned one semester at CNN. And I was assigned to John King, who was doing reporting on um, Iraq at the time. And it was really eye-opening i mean it, it it was great experience i really enjoyed that one year but it also told me that i didn't want to be in a newsroom like i really enjoy being in the field i really enjoy traveling and meeting with people and communities and also i realized i didn't necessarily want to spend the rest of my life reporting on politics like politics is just <laughs> frustrating perhaps is the word um so i really wanted to report on stories that i felt like needed to be told and weren't being told. Um, and I had this really formidable teacher at Georgetown who at the time was involved in international development. And it wasn't a term I had heard of. It wasn't really a concept I had even really heard of. But as somebody who was born in India, had gone back to India, knew what you know what the global south or developing world, whatever you want to call it, looks like, yeah. Um, it was a subject matter that really interested me. And I was like, well, there's so many in, you know, stories of people really struggling and new stories that I felt like weren't getting the headlines. So I said, is there a way that I could report on that yeah. um, in a more optimistic lens? Um, and that's what I set out to do after college.
0: But, but before I mean, you went to the London School of Economics, is that correct? Yeah. So, that was was before the the CNN and the the Katie Couric experience, no?
1: No, that was after. So, I did undergrad in Washington, D.C. I graduated in 2007. Great time to graduate. Global recession, just getting underway. (laughs) Um, And I had a mentor at Georgetown who said, have you heard of something called the Rotary Organization? And I'd never heard of Rotary. They had a scholarship called the Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship at the time. I don't know if they still do that one. And it allowed you to do your master's program in a few different places around world. London was one of the options. So I applied for a master's program at the LSE, but I had this sort of gap year for a year and I got very involved with Rotary and Rotary had partnered with the Gates Foundation to do global health work, particularly polio eradication um, yeah. in parts of the world. And this was a disease I didn't know about. My generation didn't really have to deal with it, fortunately, um, but it was very much so still prevalent in four countries. So India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Nigeria. And they were doing these trips where they would take over Rotarians and volunteers and you would partner with WHO and UNICEF on the ground and not only just help them with administering vaccines, but understand how global health works at the grassroots level. And because I spoke Hindi and I understood the Indian subcontinent, subcontinent, so they sent me. Um, hmm. And that really started my journalistic career. Because once I started seeing these incredible social entrepreneurs working on global health stuff, I said, this is what we need to be writing about. And that's actually what I started my career, writing about global health.
0: And then that's fascinating. And then you were, have you basically been a freelance journalist mm-hmm. then, ever yeah. since?
1: Yeah, I've just look- did a variety of writing jobs. I mean, you sort of have to be very entrepreneurial. So obviously, I've done writing jobs that are for private clients as well on the side. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I also think I was I, I was at an, at a place in a time where it was possible. I don't know how realistic it would be for someone just maybe starting out doing it now because the prices have dropped. It's harder. It's far more competitive landscape.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was really um embraced by editors at The Guardian, at The Atlantic, at the San Francisco Chronicle, and they would take these stories, and I was just like, wow, this is great.
0: What is what are some of your favorite stories, some of the topics that you worked on?
1: Um, I mean, the, the global health stories really are just incredible. Um, I had the opportunity to go to Bhutan, which is this incredible small kingdom, you know, nestled um near India. And spend a week just following this eye doctor who was really the first eye doctor that they'd had in the country that could do, you know, a variety of procedures and travel from village to village and see how they administer these kinds of um, procedures in really rural settings and get help to people who are at least, you know, a hundred, 200 miles away from any kind of proper hospital or clinic. Um, those are the kind of stories that were really transformative, because one, it makes you very grateful for what you do have in your life. Um, But two, I was really also inspired by the people that I met. I mean, to not have always enough funding, enough resources, but to still be so committed. And, you know, these are people who would commit their entire career to doing this. Um, There was a doctor I met in Delhi who Ran the only polio ward in the country, he was like committed to helping people who had had polio and had deformities as a result of it so couldn't walk um, and were disabled and he would be always innovating however he could in his orthopedic surgeries to help these people and always scrambling to sort of get the funding and support needed. um, and also on top of it, he kind of looked like Gandhi. He was this little petite figure, always <laughs> running around, very energetic. Um, but they're just people who are people of service. And when you meet yeah. people like that, that's really um, humbling.
0: People of service, like it. And, and the Rotary, I had friends that were in, very involved in the Rotary. And, and uh, how interesting that you were given support by the Rotary. And, and mm-hmm. they took advantage of your Indian roots and your your, your language skills. Let's talk. Let's talk about the book because I, I've I've been through parts of the book. Working to restore just came out a few months ago, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, these so words. And and your focus is on is harnessing the power of regenerative business to heal the world. It's I'm just amazed. It just seems like it's chock a block full of good examples of business practices that 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 are well. We're going to talk about the term regenerative, but that are basically good for the earth instead of being bad for the earth, right? So was that was that sort of your thinking was just to put together a a body of proof that would make that
1: argument? Absolutely. When I started reporting on this space, um, there were a few books that were written by entrepreneurs themselves, but I felt like there really wasn't a journalistic book. And even as I continued to write on this space, I i have been writing about it for over 10 years now. Um, nobody had really written this kind of journalistic book. That was just a series of case studies across industries. Oftentimes yeah. people look at just food or just fashion or just health. Um, so that was one thing. The other thing was also, I wanted a book that was engaging to general readers beyond those of us who live in the world of, you know, sustainability and development. Um, and for them, I think it's important to present examples that people can relate with. So there's coffee, there's shoes, there's chocolate, you know, there's everyday healthcare. These are things that we're all interacting with. And um, people were often asking me as I was doing the reporting and even friends would ask okay. me like, you know who should I buy? Who should I support? How do I know if a company is genuinely doing the work versus marketing? And that's what the intention was really with this book, um, and also to show that this is very much though so a global movement. This is not European centric or U.S. centric. This is happening all over the world. And if you are a young person interested in getting a job with one of these companies or starting one of these companies you really can align your interests now. So you can find something that really captivates you in terms of an industry and then sort of work within that industry to create change.
0: It's really true. That's what Gina McCarthy was saying earlier this morning. I mentioned I had her on a podcast and just as, the amount of opportunity that, that is in front of this next generation is phenomenal. I mean, obviously we've uh, we've left uh, some serious environmental issues to be addressed, but the opportunities are really great. it sounds like you've traveled a a lot to put this book together. Can you talk about that
1: yeah, um You know i had already traveled a fair amount to some of the entrepreneurs i knew that i wanted to classify and included this book but um i also got an an opportunity from the ford foundation i got a grant and that really helped support Mm. the reporting because i do feel like it's important to go and see these projects firsthand writing about them there's only so much you can really capture um through through zoom or through the phone and the other thing was also I was very conscious of the way that I traveled. I mean, it's something that's always in the back of my mind. So I would go for long stretches of time to a, a region and cover seven, eight you know, stories at once. So that way I was being thoughtful and I wasn't taking these ridiculous like long haul flights back and forth. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of these stories like going to the Amazon to see how the rubber is harvested for a company like Vesha. That really hits home or when you go and you see the conservation work being done by tourism companies in Africa, um, that really, I think, needs to be seen in person and documented.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk about this term regenerative. I can barely say it. What, What does that mean in the business sense?
1: That's a good question. Nobody can seem to agree at this point. When I started writing the book, it was 2018. This was prior pandemic. And um, the word actually the publishers and I were more keen on was restorative and restore, which is why it's in the title. Because everyone I talked to was like, look, sustainability is broken. Sustainability doesn't make sense. What are we sustaining? A broken system. The term itself is flawed. And so there was this real search to get rid of that word. And some companies were replacing it with transparency, ethical, you know, there were a variety of options. Um, Regenerative had just come into the lexicon really through food and agriculture. That was the industry that was using it or beginning to use it. And as I looked into the word, it made sense because when you're regenerating something, you're actually bringing life into something, which is far more than sustaining or sustainability. I think the trouble that we have today um, is that, it is being used really widely, and there isn't a consensus on the definition. The word, I've used the word in this context, is that these companies are regenerative in the sense that they're really thinking far more holistically about their business. It's not just one aspect of the business. So. Not only are they regenerating the earth and the ecology that they're interacting with, but also communities and people and the way they choose to do business and who they take money from and how they employ people. So a regenerative business, in my mindset, is something that's far more comprehensive. I would also go out to say that I don't think all these companies are fully regenerative yet. They'll say it themselves. They're on the path to kind of being regenerative and adopting this more regenerative mindset but it's actually an ongoing discussion. In fact, I'm just writing a piece right now for one of the fashion publications of what does regenerative fashion mean because all the big brands are using it and I think some of them are frankly misusing it.
0: Yeah, and there's probably a little greenwashing going on there now that, you know, that, now that it's sort of a buzz sort of a buzzword in the biz, so. Yeah. Interesting. Of
1: greenwashing always.
0: Let, let's talk about mission-driven brands. You, you that, I never heard that term before. Mm-hmm. I get it. Can you give some examples of mission-driven brands?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the the most famous one would be a Patagonia, for example. Mm. Um, The mission-driven brands was this term that came also out of the B Corp movement, right? So it was this idea of how can your business do something beyond profit? And so whether you use mission-driven brands or triple bottom line, these are often the terms that are being used by the community to communicate that you know, we have some kind of purpose beyond profit. There's also purpose-driven brands. Um, there's a variety of ways that you can say it that are pretty synonymous, I would say.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, now I'm proud to, to tell you that we are a B Corp. Uh, Motion is a B Corp. You know it, yeah. It took, it took us a while to, to get there. but
1: yeah.
0: I wanted to talk to you about sort of some of the practical aspects of um, businesses that are, you know, adopting new models. I, I was struck by the example of the... Um, the company in Amsterdam that was cleaning plastics and pollution out of the canals and turning it into, I don't know, park benches and, and other products. And I, you know, I obviously commend that um, and gosh, if we could take care of trash Island. That would be wonderful um, in a positive way, but you must be running into the, the, the fundamental issues of cost effectiveness, right? That, that people can, the vast majority of people out there are consumers and they're, you know, they're watching their budgets. So, how can we as a society be supporting sort of the really green business or the really sustainable businesses and, and sort of do it in a way that is that is sort of financially sustainable or scalable?
1: Um, I mean, this is like the fundamental question to this space that we're all reckoning with.
0: Sorry. <laughs> um,
1: I, the, and there's so many components to it, so I'll try to be brief and, and succinct with this. But um, one is the cost that we are so accustomed to in certain industries is frankly too low and too cheap. And the reason that you're able to buy things is because human labor is being violated, is because the earth is being violated. There's no real shortcut around that. So we need to get out of that mindset. If a t-shirt is costing you $1, there's a reason it's costing you $1. Um, So one, we need to get to a point where we're adjusting our expectations of what things need to cost. Uh, This is an often cited example is that when you look at how much you know, for example, Europeans pay for food or historically have paid for food versus Americans, American food is much cheaper and a smaller percentage of their of their annual income. So part of that is also just our approach and our mindset. The second component to that question is, I think many of these sustainable and regenerative brands and the founders themselves will say this is that they believe that they are in a way the R&D arms for these larger players. They're doing that first iteration and showing that it's possible. And then slowly the industry sort of gets its act together and says, okay, if that material is available, we will also adopt that material. That's happening now. Like in fashion, for example, that's very much so happening now. The problem you run into is finance. So if a large company is set up to maximize profits and just look at quarterly returns, are they going to be able to do this at scale and indefinitely? That's the big question mark. The smaller companies and the medium-sized companies who have this written into their legal structure and have set out with the intention to always be mindful of these kind of things, whether it's people or planet, they are able to do that because their focus is not entirely profit. So it's actually the question that I'm getting the most at all the events, all the book events also I've been doing. Is the future basically then we need to replicate all of these medium-sized companies and have thousands and thousands and thousands of them? Or is it that we need to shift the big five players in every industry? And there's kind of two schools of thought on that. Um, I really think, honestly, from the years and years of reporting that I've done in the space, I'm very skeptical of the big players. It's very hard to get all the politics to align, to get all the finances to align, to get them to truly do this stuff. I mean, there's just so much greenwashing going on, and there's so much more talk than action going on. I really think that the replication is a far more realistic model. I mean, right now, B Corp has about 7,000 companies that I think are, are registered at B Corp, the vast majority of them in US, Europe, and I think Australia, New Zealand we can have thousands more of those and that's what some of these entrepreneurs will tell you so the founder of veja for example um sebastian he said the answer is not that we take veja into this like international nike version right it's that many more people create vejas around the world and we would be excited to see that
0: that's really interesting i i think that the big players um will be influenced obviously by consumer decisions so i mean your books like yours that are raising this level of awareness and here the consumers are driving you know their de- the demand and then we also have government regulation that comes in to to say thou shalt not and i think the more that like you said the more that the entrepreneurs can prove the efficacy of these new products um, and the value of them then the regulation can um can can follow but um let's just talk energy a little bit. were there were there some examples of energy um, changes that you were particularly excited about as you wrote the book?
1: There's a chapter on energy um, and there's actually I mean there's two examples in there predominantly One is Arcadia, which is I just think it's a very simple straightforward, solution for a lot of folks. Um, Not everybody can put a solar panel on their roof. Not everybody wants to. But here's a company that's trying to just move the needle in terms of the overall industry. So you're buying into renewable energy credits by signing up with them. And so you're paying $5 extra every month, I think is the latest. Um, But you're basically saying that, okay, my energy is coming from a cleaner source or supporting a cleaner source. Um, That's a very simple, easy thing for people to do. And I think that's part of it is also like, uh, we need to come up with easier ways for people to get engaged. Not everyone is going to want to go live this like perfectly eco life, right? So we need to have a middle ground. Another company is Enacop, which is in France, um, which is just bringing up a very interesting conversation around energy ownership also and like how you can benefit from that so if you are a farm for example and you decide to allocate x amount of land to some kind of renewable energy how can your business also um, support that and community ownership of energy so those are two that made it in the book there were others also that I looked at um, that are energy sources for the global south I mean that's a big issue is like you have people who are living on very minimal means and how are they going to participate in this economy and there's actually been a lot of frugal innovation of low-cost solar of you know low-cost energy um and i think that's a big part of the conversation that unfortunately we just didn't have enough space in the book to include everybody um but there's also some really lovely companies doing work in that space too
0: is there is there another is there another book? I know we talked about sort of next steps, but are you so you must be collecting more and more and more case studies that would amplify this message.
1: I mean, publishing is a business, right? So if this proves itself financially, um, I'm sure I can have that conversation with publishers, but it's also it's also a huge undertaking. I mean, it took me three years to actually do the recording and writing for this book. And then we had a few delays because of the pandemic. But there's a part of me that actually wants to take this to a different medium. Um, it may be visual because um, people love to watch stuff these days, right? So uh, how can we engage a broader audience perhaps?
0: And you already got all these contacts. And in, in how many different countries are are we drawing examples from here?
1: Um I didn't count, but I we pretty much included every continent except for Antarctica. So I mean, I was very conscious of including examples from everywhere. So South America's included Africa, Asia, New Zealand, um, and and that was that was conscious. We really wanted to show that this is global.
0: Are there any other aspects of the book that you wanted to bring out that I haven't
1: queried you about? Um, I think I would just put this disclaimer is that we live in a culture and a cancel culture right now. We live in a culture with a lot of noise. And one thing that does kind of trouble me is that if a company is not perfect, or if a pursuit is not perfect in some way in terms of being sustainable or environmental, I don't think the answer is necessarily always to nitpick it and perhaps just kind of say, okay, that's not going to work. But it's really to kind of embrace all of this. um, Because none of the none of these companies are perfect. Some of them may not survive, some of them may fizzle out, some of them may not make it financially. But I think to understand how difficult it is also to build a business, because at the end of the day, they have to be profitable, they have to be a business. Mm -hmm. And that is really keen. I mean, every entrepreneur wanted to highlight that very much so is that, we started with the intention of doing good and that will always be core to the business but we also need to be a business um it's very difficult when you look at for example materials right now with packaging i know it's a big hot button kind of topic of people looking at packaging and dissecting how much plastic a company is using and all the reason they may be using plastic is because literally there isn't a good substitute material so If you wanna be a part of the answer, go help do the R&D for that. Um, There are some really big sustainable brands that are like desperately looking for better materials that they can use for packaging. And also it's not just their decision, right? Because these goods have to move all around the world. So they have to be in materials that they will be safe and kept watertight and all these things. So it's a huge logistical nightmare. I mean, you have to shift an entire global supply chain. Um, I think the complexity and the nuance of this is something I would just tell people to keep in the back of their head as they're reading my book or as they're reading anything to do with sustainability these days.
0: And maybe that 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 line, you know, don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. I mean, if you've got a company that's taken significant steps and is on the path, like you said, that's a good thing. It may not be perfect. It might have some packaging or some other issues, but but it is on the path. and i I appreciate the um the small businesses and the the realities of running a business. I like to say that the business of business is quite a business. it's not it's not all fun. you you know your mission is important, but you do have to support yourself and your employees. How do you keep, um, how do you keep balance in your life? You seem like you're, you're healthy and you're doing well. You got to, how do you keep balance?
1: I mean, I've had months of burnout. I've had periods of like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Um, But I think what I've also learned is that you have to kind of keep your life a little simple and basic. And that's what I've drifted towards. Um, It helps me stay sane. Also, you can't do everything. You have to learn to say no. There will be opportunities that you have to say no to but also to find pleasure and um, joy in really simple things. So I spend time in my garden. I am not a perfect gardener, but I try to grow a few things that are edible. I spend a lot of time in nature. I go for walks, I travel. And when I travel, I try to just totally disconnect from technology as much as I can. Um, I think it's important. I think it's important also just to be a human being with interests outside of your job. in America, we just love our jobs as our identities, right? And, and it's so important to have other things. Um, so I do really simple things like bake bread and garden and go for walks. And it helps me stay sane. <laughs> oh,
0: very great. So good talking to you. Really enjoyed thank it.
1: You. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the time.
0: Oh, you're more than welcome. And congratulations on your book and your accomplishments thus far.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Have a lovely weekend in Glendale. Take care.
0: You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.